All right, welcome to the Armchair Commanders podcast. I am John. I'm Jack. And uh, this week we are reviewing the film A Bridge Too Far, which is about the invasion of Holland, also known as Operation Market Garden. And this week we are joined by a very special guest. Um, his name is Blake, and he is a member of the World War II Airborne Demonstration Team. Blake, if you'd uh, like to say hi to everybody. Hey, hello, everyone. How's it going? I don't think they can respond to you, Blake. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you guys can't. Yeah. We, we greatly appreciate you uh, being on. What uh, So could you tell us a little bit about the, the team you're on? You bet, man. Happy to be here. So the World War II Airborne Demonstration Team, our, our whole mission is to remember, honor, and serve our veterans, whether that be veterans of World War II or any other conflict that we've been in. Uh, we, we do that through uh, gatherings at our hangar, which is in Frederick, Oklahoma. Uh, it's an original World War II era hangar that, that is on what used to be Frederick Army Airfield. The hangar is a sight to see, man. It's, it's, it's exactly how it was 79, 80 years ago. Um, myself, I went through the parachute school. We hold a parachute school twice a year in July and October for anybody, whether you're civilian, uh, prior military, it does not matter. You can come get five jumps out of a C-47 an actual combat veteran. So you're stepping out of the same door those guys did, uh, on the day. So myself, uh, I, I went through the school this past October. I'm now a part of the recruiting with ADT. I've got 11 jumps out of a C-47 or a C-49. Those are the two platforms that we have that we jump out of. Uh, the C-47, her name is Boogie Baby, and the C-49, her name is Wildcat. So got 11 jumps. I'll be going back in July for the July jump school, getting hopefully four to five more jumps and keep on jumping. So uh, looking forward to being here because I'm actually doing a jump into the same drop zone that these guys did in the Netherlands this, this, uh, this coming year, not this year, but next year. We'll be going over the Netherlands for the 80th anniversary of Market Garden and doing a jump there. So really cool wow. to get to visit about it. That's really impressive. That's so you're, you're, you're actually going to be doing a jump from the same planes that they were using into the, the same exact drop zones and stuff. Exactly. So, so <clears throat> as far as what plane we'll be jumping out of in the Netherlands, I'm not sure the, the exact plane. It may be one of ours. I don't know if we're taking ours over there, but I know for a fact it'll be it'll be at least a C-47, C-49, C-53. All of those are relatively the same aircraft, just different right. variants of them. So, but it will be identical aircraft, identical equipment, just a little more modern parachutes, still the round canopy military style, you know, static line where you jump out of the plane and that static line deploys your canopy for you. So yeah, man, this, this next year, 2024, I will be going over there to jump into the exact same drop zones they did. Uh, still unclear on which one at the moment that's to be determined, but it'll be one of the original drop zones. Well, hopefully that's your amazing. jump goes a lot better than the, uh, into Arnhem. <laughs> Usually we're not under flak or fire. So I, I think, uh, Usually. <laughs> I, Usually, I so. <laughs> unless you consider uh, the, the pigeons at Frederick Army Airfield <laughs> flat, I think I we're all right. As long as we keep our feet and knees together, man. You ever get like a jump in in the, the deep, deep south and Billy Bob doesn't like your plane or something? 
<laughs> now, if we jumped in Alabama where I live, that, that might be something that could happen. But out there in Oklahoma, <laughs> so long as we don't have any disputes with the farmers, then we're all right. All we have to contend with is the, the, the afternoon jumps, the turbulence gets kind of rough, and you can pretty well feel what it'd be like without uh, actually getting shot at. So so uh how did you get involved in the team have you have you always been like a, a history buff or were you prior military or what did that look like for you so i am not prior military i've always had a passion for military history ever since i was young my, it's just been my mom and i most of my life and she has she's really been instrumental in <clears throat> in that passion and my desire to learn when i was younger um, she carried me around to every museum that she could. That was, that was part of my school. I was homeschooled when I was younger. So that was part of my school was for her to carry me around and, and help me pursue that, that passion in, in military history and history in general. Um, going into adulthood, I, I, I've always had a passion for military history, but, but never really had a career surrounding that. I'm actually a professional horseman and a professional farrier by trade, a, a farrier meaning uh, putting shoes on horses' feet, like a podiatrist, but for horses. So yep. that's that's the career path that I led down. But I, I always had that that yearning to want to get to experience just one ounce of what those guys might have experienced, minus the gunfire, obviously, minus the the, the really difficult parts of combat that you can only experience in that. Um, but I wanted to understand, you know, what the uniforms felt like, what the weapons felt like, you know, so on and so forth. And I never knew ADT existed until uh, January of this past year. I was sitting on my couch watching a YouTube video about guys jumping into Normandy, just sitting there watching this video saying, you know, man, that's incredible. These guys get to do that. I would kill for the opportunity to get to do that myself. You know, oh, well, but it probably will never happen. That's probably something pretty exclusive, you know, just, just a, a, a dream. Sure enough, when that video ended, the next video that popped up was a recruiting video for ADT uh, saying, you know, so you want to learn to parachute and video still up on YouTube. If you go and search it, you can find it. And man, <clears throat> I was awestruck to see this hangar, these two original planes with the invasion stripes painted on them, everybody in their uniforms, the jumping and to find out that I could get five jumps from a moving C-47 jumping out at 1500 feet. I called the next day. I literally paid my deposit that night, put it on a credit card, didn't even worry about it, called the next day and talked to, to the recruiter. And uh, I got the, 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 what's the way to put this, the, the luck of getting in early. Um, I was supposed to be scheduled for, for late 2024 and they had an opening mm -hmm. in October of 2022. And so rather than me having to wait, I got in early. Uh, that's super rare with us. A lot of guys end up waiting a couple of years before they get into a school. And I got in within the same year. And five plus one jumps at the school. So I got six jumps total. My sixth jump being my my uh, first jump as a team member, which we call it our cherry jump. That's <laughs> if you ever see one of us with a red stripe across our helmet, that's your cherry jump. It's, you know. Uh, like you probably think you're, you're, you're popping your metaphorical cherry yeah. as, a, as, a, as a team member. <laughs> so it's a pretty big deal. I got that. I think on, you, on. you could just say popping your cherry. I don't think you need to add metaphorical to it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's already you're jumping out. Times by that point. You're, you're jumping out of an airplane. You get to call it whatever you want. Yep. Yep. 
So uh, it's it's great to have you with us. I suppose we should uh, probably get to the movie now. So uh, absolutely. As uh, I usually like to start, Jack, what'd you think? I love this movie. It was a good one. It was. I want to say this is like the most star-studded movie we've had thus far. Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh yeah, it's it's a it's a stacked cast. It's like, yeah, it's like if Ocean. Yeah. It's like I said at the end of the last podcast. It's like Ocean's Eleven was a, a war movie. Yep. Because you got <laughs> you got Robert Redford. You have Anthony Hopkins, uh, Michael Caine, just tons and tons of people in this. So it I couldn't imagine what like. Well, I I, I can't imagine because I was looking it up uh today and uh i saw that at the time a bridge too far was the most expensive film ever made up to that point it had like a 25 or 26 million dollar budget which i know by today's standards is not like a lot but um one of the funny stories i was reading was so they did a lot of on-site uh shooting for this film so they actually went to holland uh to do a lot of these scenes and uh the locals there caught wind or, you know, it was, it was like in the newspapers or the news that, you know, studio approves this ridiculous budget for this film. And uh, all the local businesses started hiking up their prices. So there's a instance where one of like one of the people working with props or stuff needed to get some cement. So he goes to like whatever the Dutch version of Home Depot is and a bag of cement was costing them a hundred dollars in the 70s and they're like what in the fuck is going on here and they're like what you have money so (laughs) so yeah i i can only imagine that a good chunk of this budget went to getting all those you know what would become super big name stars what about you blake what did you uh think of this film i'm guessing this isn't your your first watch through of it no man i absolutely love this movie I, I, mainly i love it you know the airborne scenes to me you know all the different scenes were there uh, one thing that is just awe inspiring to me is the, the the number of transport aircraft they have in this movie all, all those c-47s and and just the, the scope like you're saying the sheer budget it takes to make a movie that's this size is really incredible to me and the airborne scenes, you know, it's it's cool because for, for a guy who geeks out on parachutes, there's a lot of little details that that, that are interesting to watch. I, I probably couldn't tell you as much about them as some of the instructors at ADT could, but just uh, some of the variations that they call it in the movie, like the, the, the British system of how they uh, their, their anchor cable that deployed the parachute was on the floor of the aircraft versus the American ones, which are running along the ceiling of the aircraft. Just little things like that that were that were neat to see the details put in. Um, it, just the, the sheer size of the movie is is really really neat and a real joy to watch. No, I uh, I think me, me and Jack. This is actually the the first film we've watched together. So him and I we we live in different time zones. Um, mm-hmm. So this this first film we've watched together, we did it over Discord, and I remember. Uh, the scene where you know they're doing the takeoffs with the c-47s and they're pulling the gliders um i know i was and i'm sure jack was as well but we were very impressed just by 
you know, movies today is always so heavily reliant on CGI and stuff like that. And to see, to have a film that has so much original equipment and not even just the airplanes, but also just the sheer number of Sherman tanks we see in this film is just astounding. Um, but I, I found myself very impressed by the the jump scene itself. Even though there there was one moment because obviously there there was no functional horse gliders at, at this point. So what we what we see in the movie is just ground mockups that they they tow. But then you you do that like two or three second cut scene of what is very obviously live action footage of the C forty sevens flying, and then it's like almost like a Monty Python, they pasted the the horse gliders into the the scene and they're right. just un, they're just stationary and unmoving while everything around them is. And it's just that there's a lot of just like little moments like that that if you pay attention, you're like, you know, for a movie for a massive budget, there's a lot of stuff that uh they let slip by. Right, right. I'm sure they did what they could. This was the seventies and oh yeah absolutely i mean for a film produced in the 70s it i i think it's very well done i i would i i don't know i i don't want to say it looks like an 80s movie because it doesn't but it definitely doesn't fit the mold for a lot of other 70s movies right yeah man i i think it i think it holds up even even today i mean so you know some of the scenes where they're getting shot you know it, you can kind of see see uh some of the age to it there but it, it never suspended that that belief you know when you're watching the movie for me uh, for me again you know i i i guess like uh the airborne scenes for me are kind of the the, the main event and then everything else after that is just kind of a, <laughs> an add-on to it well that's fair so uh for you, I I don't know if uh, I I don't know about you, Jack, but I, I've never gone parachuting before in my life. Um, Me neither. I'm a I'm a bit of a chicken in that regards. Not a I not want a big... to. <laughs> I I also would like to, but I also have a, a thing about heights, so I don't know. I don't know how well that'd work out, but just just don't hit the ground fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's what I was going to get to. Was uh, you know. In this film, a it's it's also astounding to think of how many people that they got because the the parachute scenes there's some wartime footage cut into it, but they did Ooh. actually do these massive jumps for the film. Right. So I just I'm astounded that they got so many parachutists together to film these scenes. But one of the recurring shots that we get in this film is uh, from is basically like they strapped a camera to a dude's helmet and you see them tumbling out of the airplane and then they hit the ground and it's always, you know, followed by a, and uh, I know you got, I know when you parachute, you, you generally come in at a pretty good clip, but it, but is that accurate? I was going to ask that, like how fast do you hit the ground? That's a really great question. And I may be incorrect on, on the number here. Uh, One of the instructors could answer it to an exact number, but I believe we come in, to, to land somewhere around 18 to 20 feet per second. Um, so you're coming down fast. The objective with the round canopy jump like that is not to get you on the ground like you're a skydiver, you're landing on your feet and waving to the crowd. 
the objective with these kind of canopies is to get troops on the ground as quick as possible because you're likely being, you know, shot at or you've got an objective to go complete. So when you land, you're, you're landing hard. <clears throat> and for me, I've finally figured out how to land in, in a way that doesn't hurt you quite as bad. But you, you land like a like a concrete brick. It is it's it's painful if you don't know how to do it. And so one thing that we learn in the school is what's called PLFs, which are parachute landing falls. And uh, and so during a PLF, you know, we have and, and I won't give you guys the, the whole long story about it, but you have five places on your body that that have to make contact with the ground to disperse the, the energy that, that you're you're landing with. So you're landing really hard. So if you you know, locked your legs or you landed with your feet apart, you know, you could break a leg, you could break a knee, something like that. So we land balls of our feet, our calf, our thigh, our buttocks, and then our shoulder, and you roll all the way over. And, uh, and so it's, you'll hear us say it 150 million times. If you're ever around somebody that does this type of, of parachuting feet and knees together, uh, when we land your feet and knees together, knees slightly bent, you know, look out at the horizon and prepare to land. And man, you know, I, like I'll tell you my last jump, uh, a quick little story. My last jump, I was set up, you know, to where I was coming into land. I was faced into the wind, thought it was going to be beautiful. You know, I, I'm like, all right, it's going to be a rear right PLF, which means you're going to land off of your, your, your right shoulder kind of behind you, more rolling backwards than anything. And I was like, all right, this will be nice. Wind hit me last second, turned it to where I basically just went feet knees face right into the dirt <laughs> was not comfortable so yeah that, that's completely accurate when you land it it hurts if it's not just right mm. okay so that that wasn't uh played up or over exaggerated that no seems par for the course absolutely <laughs> but well, <clears throat> weren't weren't you saying john that apparently the ground at the site they were jumping was perfect for that kind of jump yeah i remember reading um you know everybody's favorite parachuter book uh band of brothers um i remember uh the chapter when they're talking about market garden a lot of the veterans of easy company talking about the fact that you know holland is a very uh it's got very <coughs> moisture dense uh soil so a lot of the guys that i that were a part of that book anyways described it as like a really good jump or almost like a almost more perfect than a training jump just because of the the ground being kind of almost spongy if you will hmm. but that seems like a unimportant detail in, in regards to the film so but just you know, a, it, a tidbit for the day as far as from my end goes that that uh it's more important than you think it would be i remember when i was a student you know that they told us they said look you know you guys are getting to jump into this new new uh new drop zone it's called drop zone kubaki and it's a plowed field you know you guys you have it made you just don't even know and and sure enough i was like ah, oh, you know i mean i guess that matters i don't know i've never jumped out of a plane before and then we jumped and landed there was a couple really hard landings for me and it was into that plowed field and that nice plowed soil just made it to where you know it still hurt but it wasn't like hospital injury and uh one of the landings was real hard uh my own fault there but 
But uh, that that plowed field came in real handy because uh, the other drop zone we could have been jumping on was nothing but nice packed in, you know, grassy sort of terrain. And a couple of us might have broken some things had we not had that nice plowed dirt. So I can see their appreciation for that. (laughs) For uh, our uh, listeners who can't see you, Two out of three of us have our, our cameras running during this little interview. I see you got yourself a, a rocks glass there. What are you uh, drinking this evening, Blake? I am having some uh, Eagle Rare uh, Kentucky Kentucky straight bourbon and uh, mixing in a little bit of Coke with it because I feel like it. it's a free country after all. There you go. Oh, that's fair. Jack, what do you got? Well, I was going to go make tea for this, but I... Wanted to help my guest, our guests to the best of my abilities, so I couldn't go and make it. Instead, I have a um, very large can of Neon Burst fruit drink. What? What? Great blowout. 8% alcohol. Neon Neon Burst? Is that... Yep. Neon Burst. What? I've never heard of that. Is that some... It's a 25-ounce okay. can. Okay, so it's it's like a convenience store can of yes. alcohol that's meant to be stolen by teenagers. <laughs> it's th- yeah, think think watered down juice like or watered watered down four loco. That's it. And, <laughs> and I'll have you know, I didn't four steal loco it. for I kids. It. <laughs> Baby's first four loco. <laughs> Shut up. You said stolen from a gas station, and I instantly got Excuse memories. Excuse you, I, I like bought 15. it fair and square. That just <laughs> makes it worse, I know, but I uh, I went back to my tried and true. I'm uh, almost done with uh, my most recent bottle of Sailor Jerry's, so oh. I can finally yeah. see the uh, the hidden little design on the back of the label. For, for those cool. of you who don't know, if you uh, ever buy a bottle of Sailor Jerry's, when you finish the bottle, you can see uh, it's a, a flash design by uh, him that he did up. So it's like a, it's almost like a Kinder Egg, but <laughs> Both alcohol. <laughs> Speaking of drinks, what do we think about our, our most serious insult of this entire film of uh, the one American commander confronting the, uh, the British... Uh, 30 core commander when uh they had just broken through on the bridge and uh they stopped he's like i'm sorry but we have orders you're just gonna sit here and drink tea (laughs) yeah that was who that was an insult too far (laughs) but Uh, i see i see what you did there that's that that was a good one thanks quite clever but um i was also gonna bring that scene up because I believe it's where he's talking like, oh, we got to go save the soldiers. And then the Brit's like, no, we don't. We got orders. We have to stay here and blah, blah, blah. That really highlights the military culture between those two countries. Because the American soldier wanted to cowboy it. It was like, piss on that. We got lives to save. Let's go saddle up and blah, blah, blah. And stiff upper, upper lip Brit is like, no, we have to follow the rules to the letter. It's not proper decorum. It's not proper. I don't know. I will say though, um, obviously the like the stiff upper lip thing. You know, granted we're not British and uh, we 
weren't raised in that culture and damn right we know, weren't <laughs> yeah we uh we we fought a whole war not to have that culture a couple hundred years ago but um it is interesting to watch even if it is infuriating on our part because we don't really understand it but what i will say is that probably one of the greatest scenes in this entire film comes from the whole like british being cheeky thing and that's with uh anthony hopkins and uh i know we've been jumping around a bit on this but uh we're a few days into the battle anthony hopkins i believe his character is uh colonel frost if i'm not mistaken but um so they've been having a couple few days of super hard fighting and they were told that they were going to be relieved in like two days and now they're way past that mark and uh the scene comes up where you have a solitary german with a white flag walking across the bridge and in perfect english you know yells out to the british my general says there's no need to keep fighting and we're willing to discuss a surrender and uh anthony hopkins tells his subordinate to you know tell him to go to hell and then his subordinate is like i'm sorry we can't accept your surrender now <laughs> and that that a that was a it, it was a fantastic moment and truly just beautiful and and really just like i know our recurring joke is america fuck yeah but this is our our one britain fuck yeah moment but um i i also just love the look on that german soldier's face because you know as like somebody who speaks english as a second language he had to have had at least like a two second moment in his brain that was just like everything was going haywire he's where he's like wait what did i tell say to them what did i <laughs> did i screw this up so but truly i out of this entire film that was bar none my my favorite scene was just the the cheek from anthony hopkins there it really reminded me of that scene in Princess Bride where Wesley's wounded and the Princess Buttercup is with him and the king's right-hand man, I can't remember his name, but he rides up on them, draws his sword and says, surrender. And then Wesley says, you wish to surrender to me? Very well, I accept. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that uh, that just kind of seems also to be the style or the mindset of paratroopers in world war two just in general because the we get a almost a, the exact same scenario a couple months later from uh the 101st airborne when they're surrounded in bastogne during the battle of the bulge and okay. the the german commander is like okay guys just give up and the U.S. commanders all has a one-word response, which is just nuts. Haha, <laughs> 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 jokes on you. We're supposed to be surrounded. That's right. Now we can kill him from all sides. <laughs> Who was it? Was it a? Uh, was it Chesty Polar that said that? That's a Chesty quote. Yeah, we're surrounded. That simplifies matters. <clears throat> It's also the same guy that when he saw a test demonstration for the flamethrower, he said, where do we put the bayonet? <laughs> That's successful. Uh, I've heard that one before. Speaking of flamethrowers, 
were Blake, were you ever aware of flamethrowers flame being deployed with airborne troops? Because that was the one that was one scene that shocked me was though you know, there's the bunker on Arnhem Bridge and uh, they send a flamethrower team to go knock it out in the middle of the night. And I'm like, wait a minute, that seems really, really dangerous to just parachute a flamethrower into combat. Uh, that would be cumbersome to jump with. Um, <clears throat> from my end, I don't know entirely too much about the, uh, the, the the British Airborne Corps during the war. I would love to, to know more about what they jumped with. Um, you know, I know that there were specific weapons. If, if we kind of jump back to Normandy, it was really thought out as far as what guys could or couldn't jump with as far as weight goes, because weight is always a concern when you're underneath that canopy. You know, th these guys were 160 something pounds, but they were carrying 100 pounds worth of equipment. Um, and that is literally I got to look at a manifest from a, uh, a veteran of World War Two and um, his manifest. He was 170 pounds at the time and he weighed 270 on, on the day that he was getting to jump into or that he had to jump into Normandy. Um, I do not see how one of those guys would be able to jump with a flamethrower, but it's it's not impossible. Could it could have came with the glider corps, you know, if they had glider infantry that were carrying that sort of thing. But to, to be honest with you, from my recollection, I don't I don't know of any guys who who did jump with flamethrowers. But but uh, I don't know that I'd want to be the guy who did have to. <laughs> he drew the short straw that jump he, he drew the short straw i know there were a lot of guys who had to jump with the uh, uh the anti-tank weapons you know bazookas so on and so forth and uh, i know I a couple of guys that, got going ahead i was oh i was i was going to say that was one thing i i really appreciate in this movie is we get a lot of uh piot action which is the right. the british anti-tank equivalent to the bazooka except instead of being rocket powered it's spring powered right. but i also love there's so many scenes of them using this weapon and it's the most ineffective thing in the world like they can never hit like it's not that the explosives aren't good it's they they just never hit anything and <laughs> you're watching this movie and you're just like come on you have one job just, just aim it a little higher right but that that had to have been hell to aim though Oh absolutely. oh, absolutely. And you guys got me curious to go look up and see if there was ever any record of somebody jumping with a flamethrower. I'm really interested to find that out. <laughs> I feel I, I, I feel like that would have had to have been like with the canisters or something like that, like mm -hmm. the the additional supply drops or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. We do quite a bit of that at ADT doing doing uh, you know, practice and supply drops. We actually went to an air show just recently that our jump got scratched uh, from winds being too high, but we did get to do a bundle drop, which is where we basically did the equivalency of supply drop. So that that very well could be how it could be how they got it to the ground if they uh, if they did jump with something like that. So curious to learn that one. I know uh, this film tends to jump back and forth between. Um, being like super upbeat and patriotic and like go team allies. And then there's also, we get a lot of scenes of like futility of war. What did we think about the, uh, you know, speaking of canisters, there's a scene in this movie uh, with the British paras that um, 
their drop zone is cut off from them and they're not able to get supplies, but one canister floats close enough that one of the soldiers ends up uh, going after it. And he makes it to the canister and he picks it up, he starts running back, and then he's cut down by machine gun fire. And it's a very it's a very heavy moment because the the shot pans down and we see that the canister that he was trying to get, you know, you, you could only imagine in his mind that he's thinking like, oh, this is ammo or this is medical supplies right. or it's food or anything like that. And the shot pans down and we see just a canister full of red berets. Like it's, it's so depressing, but it's also, it's weirdly comical too, because you're like, that is a very British thing where it's like, of course they would airdrop it's in to look stuff, to look proper, you know, yeah, um, what what do we think about that scene, or how did it impact you guys? It at first when I first watched it, I was like, okay, the things are only like what hundred feet away. We could, we could just go and get them. And then it and then one one guy even said, "Don't go. There's sniper fire." I'm like, okay, there it is. Right. Yeah. For me, man, my first thought. I mean, when when I saw. What was inside of it? I was like, okay, who's the supply officer that thought that, that was a good idea to drop red berets when they probably need the the space on that aircraft more for you, whatever else, ammunition, food, yeah, forget that. Yeah, make sure they look sharp. <laughs> that uh, follows that stiff upper lip thing you were talking about earlier. But but uh, yeah, it's depressing sometimes to see yet depicted that just the, the, the futility of it all you know I, I see it as kind of a metaphor that uh you know to take one thing to lose another it, it can be relatively futile but uh but yeah it was a sad scene for sure speaking of uh wondering what a quartermaster is thinking i don't know if you guys recall but in the initial scene of the airplanes taking off um, we get an inside shot of one of the gliders and we see one troop who is holding a chicken. Did, mm -hmm. Do you guys remember that scene? Yep. Yep. I was going to bring it up earlier. <laughs> so I was so curious by this. I was like, why did they bother? What was the purpose of them adding this scene in? So I, I went on a little bit of a Google rabbit hole and apparently that guy was actually a quartermaster with the british paras um and the chicken was his pet and he had a a bet with his buddies or fellow squad whoever just he had a bet with somebody about whether or not chickens could fly so he brought <laughs> the chicken on the glider flight with him and uh in real life the the chicken did not survive um unfortunately very tragic even though he was able to win his bet about chickens flying but uh the the continuation of this story is that there is a brewery in england that came up with a special um like a limited release beer that's named after this chicken and the funds from this beer went to uh basically fund a statue for said chicken in Holland. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I, I've yet to have the, 
the privilege or uh, experience of going over to Europe, but I know what's at the top of my list now of places to visit, which is the British Parachute Chicken Memorial. <laughs> Parachicken. <laughs> yeah, the cool thing about that, they buried that chicken when they did bury her with a uh, set of British jump wings. So she earned she earned her wings. But, you know what? Uh, more more than deserving. More than deserving. That's kind of the interesting thing. Uh, that story with that chicken and how he wanted to jump with her to prove that chickens could fly. It's uh, it, it kind of makes me think of a weird phenomena with everybody who jumps. Uh, we all have this thing where we like to jump with specific items, and nobody else gets it. It's like you know, you'll show somebody a ring. Like for instance, I jump with my grandfather's ring. Um, just to kind of have him with me on jumps, uh, you know, like, he, he a passed good away luck, like a good luck charm type deal. Exactly. My grandfather passed away this past year. And so I have his ring on, you know, with, with me every single jump, you know, I'm always afraid of losing it. So I tape up my finger. If you look in a couple of my pictures on my page, you'll see my, my ring finger taped up, you know, uh, it's not where I, I tore my hand or anything. I'm just making sure that ring doesn't come off, you know, when I go out of the plane, but but uh, yeah, it's like the first thing I'll mention to somebody is, yeah, yeah, this ring is my grandfather's. I've jumped with it, you know, and then I'll do that with a bunch of different things. It's this weird phenomena all of us kind of have where we, we want to jump with specific items like uh, my A2 leather jacket, my team jacket. Yeah, I had to jump it at least once. So I did jumped it at the, the April jump school that we had. And uh, so that's, that's kind of one of those things like people will carry random stuff with them on jumps just to say that they jumped it. Something about it makes it more sentimental. So I could see that guy wanting to jump with this chicken for more than one reason. I gotta say the the chicken is a lot more interesting of a story than our uh, flute player in this movie. Oh yeah, don't don't get me wrong. I I enjoyed the aesthetic of the one British paratrooper who kept playing his flute, but also it make it's one of the back of the mind things where you're like, of all the things that you're you gotta. You got a hundred pounds that you're going to shove onto your body and the flute is going to be one of those hundred pounds. I mean, right. yeah, he, he's the, he's the bard. He has to have an instrument to keep everyone's spirits up and give them a bonus or something. <laughs> I don't know. Let's hear, let's hear your explanation. I, I don't have an explanation. <laughs> I, you know what? You're right. They did deserve some music. Mm hmm. Maybe it was just his lucky flute. Yeah, it's his lucky flute. It's a shame he was one of the ones left behind. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the price you pay as a musician. That was, man, the the moment when they're extracting, uh, you know, I, I was reading, they jumped in with, the British jumped in with something like 10,000 troops to capture Artem. And uh, when they finally extracted the people that they could, it was something like 2,000, which that is just a significant loss, e even though the there's a lot of people left behind that were who were just wounded. But, you know, that's, you know, I don't think we've seen, I don't think in World War II, you really see a unit get decimated to that level since like World War One. Um, so I think that's a, a very powerful scene, but it also, it, it speaks to how 
poorly the the option the operation actually was done and it makes you it makes you think like what was montgomery thinking when he Mm. concocted this idea i know i know there was a a big push because after the normandy invasion they combined the 101st the 82nd and the british troops into the first allied army or the first allied airborne army and there is a kind of a political move to try and get them used um but they you know jump after jump kept getting canceled so i think montgomery really took advantage of the you know the political pressure of like we need to use this one specific army group to justify its creation and then he he ends up you know getting a whole bunch of them waxed you know just goes to show you how one man's ego or multiple men and their egos can cause a disaster you know yep. that, that uh I think he was an intelligence officer. I don't remember his name from the movie, but I'm sure everybody remembers him. He was the one rocking the boat saying, you know, let's do a second low level. You do do see the takes, sir. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Him, you know, uh, uh, he's sitting there saying, look, you know, you need to rethink this. You're you're walking your men into a massacre. And then you had the the radio man who, who, you know, said that these radios probably aren't going to work, you know, because of the, difference in conditions but he didn't want to rock the boat he didn't want to say anything so that's uh that's one of those things that's a lot like we talk about when we parachute it's it's never one big thing it's a bunch of little small things that that compile into you know a, a critical point of failure so that's kind of the same thing there it was all the little things that piled into a, a disaster so after watching this movie i i always um you know like i've said before and previous shows i i have my degree in history so every time i watch a movie i always end up spending like a day or two just deep diving and researching whatever given topic we're doing and uh i watched uh an inner a post-war interview with montgomery um i think he had been he was like in his 70s at this point and uh the person who was interviewing him was like have you ever lost a battle? And his response was like, Nope, not one. Hmm. I'm like, really? (laughs) Haven't lost a single one. You, you got, got anything, uh, scratch in the back of your mind on that question or, but it's it's like they said, (laughs) something you'd like like to share with the class. (laughs) Well, it's like they said at the end of the movie, Montgomery thinks this is 90, 90% of success. I'm, I'm sure the, the British paratroopers really share that sentiment. Right. <laughs> yeah. Ask, ask those injured guys at the end getting taken captive if they think it's a 90% success. So long as leadership's happy, so long as the officers are happy, it was a success. I mean, I don't know if anybody, I, I'm sure somebody at some point has, but this very much feels like Market Garden was the allied equivalent to the Battle of the Bulge except we were able to bounce back from it. And there to this day is a ton of controversy, controversy, controversy. Yeah, that's it. Around Third time's operation, a charm. shut up around operation market garden. And I don't know much, or I don't know enough about it to offer my two cents, but planning is important. And towards the beginning, he says something like, huh, 
D-Day was planned in six months. We had this down in six days. I'm like, do you really want to say that out loud? Right. Right. Well, it, it kind of goes, I am convinced because, you know, we, we get the classic war will be done by Christmas quote. Oh God. Yeah. And, that line. Yeah. What all I've learned from my study of history is the second you say that a war will be done by Christmas, it will a hundred percent not be done by, not be by done. Christmas. Maybe in that like is, three or four Christmases. Yeah. <laughs> that is a surefire way to extend your war is to say it's going to be done by Christmas. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it. To be fair though, and it's interesting and uh the other movie that we had had up for a possible choice, which was The Longest Day, uh, which is another great, you know, it's a more overall encompassing, you know, obviously of both the beach landings and the airborne operations. But uh, it's it's another great, you know, we get a British, American, Canadian view of this giant operation. And that's something I appreciate about Market Garden is we're seeing it from each perspective. But uh there was an operate. There was a small operational part of D Day where um, there were British glider troops who were specifically mm -hmm. trained to seize a bridge, and it was like six gliders. And basically, there it, it was almost a copy and paste of what Market Garden was supposed to be, which is they flew their gliders in, they seized the bridge. And then their objective was just to hold the bridge until the troops that were coming in from the shore came to relieve them. And what, and it's another Stephen E. Ambrose book. It's, it's called Pegasus bridge. And we see it in uh, the longest day, but it, it goes to show that when you have the six months to plan an operation, you, you could realistically accomplish these things. Um, I know that like modern airborne forces pride themselves on the fact that, you know, they can deploy within 24 hours and stuff, but you know, there's a lot to be said about properly planning for an operation, which is, you know, the biggest downfall that, you know, the movie takes great pains to foreshadow the fact that this was a bad idea. Hmm. It's like, what was it like 20 minutes of just nonstop, like, of the Star Wars, I got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you both know the six P's, right? Uh, Pro no. Proper planning prevents piss poor performance. Yeah, I've heard that one before. I don't know why it didn't pop into mind. Sometimes I say seven P's to trip people up. So it's proper planning prevents piss poor performance. P. <laughs> just to keep was, people on their toes well if there's one thing you're good at mm -hmm. i think that was one of the many things i heard during that that jump school i think that's the first time i ever heard that saying was was when i was a student at adt <laughs> that boy everything is planned out meticulously every single step it's it's the details that matter and that sort of thing yeah, well, when you're talking about jumping out of airplanes, that doesn't seem like something you want to half-ass. You want to no. be a full-ass yeah. about it. Yeah. I was going to say, you want to be prepared for that. You don't just wing it. <laughs> no doubt about it. <laughs> I mean, you, you do wing it, but just not in the same way. Just uh, wings the airplane. <laughs> you, just, you just don't want to have an Icarus moment, that's all. That's right.
No Darwin mm-hmm. Awards amongst us. Twas hubris. <laughs> but uh, speaking of planning, what did we what did we think about the scene where the um, the one German soldier comes across a, a crash glider? And uh, he finds the map case, yeah. and on he like opens <laughs> it up, and there's a map, and it just says "tops" like in big bold red letters, "top secret." Yeah, yep. and then it, and then another scene, it shows another page, and it says "do not take on jump." Right. <laughs> God damn it! I I had to look it up because I was like, "There's no way, there's no way that they have their entire battle plan be like, like the." The company and brigade leader, like whatever, whatever level of officers, you would think that they would just have, they would be told, you need to memorize this plan. Here are your maps, but remember what the game plan is and just go from there. Like, I didn't think that that they would actually have like a map with the lines drawn, like circling, like we need this place. And I was like, no way this is real. And I Googled it and it legitimately is. And that's actually one of the reasons why uh, you know, in this movie, Modal ignores it, but in real life, General Modal got the plans, and he's like jackpot, right? God, like it was a big reason why the the Germans, as as the one Polish trooper said, were successful at you know stopping this advance. I know, I know, it was a cheap shot to to make fun of a, a person's accent, but I just I- kept laughing every time he said the Germans. I was going to say, we made it 49 and a half minutes before somebody said Germans. <laughs> Gene Hackman. Oh, I, for- I forgot Gene Hackman was also in this. And Also, I... we've made it 50 minutes and we haven't mentioned Mr. James Bond himself either of Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Who, Sean who Connery. also had a stellar performance in this movie. Mm-hmm man yeah i i even if it were a bad idea i'd follow him into battle in holland absolutely maybe maybe not as not with montgomery as the general but still i gotta say i i think that was my biggest disappointment of the movie was not getting a scene of james bond himself coming out of one of the planes full under canopy like they had to make him where he had air sickness. Like, come on, he's James Bond. Right. Like, we just so, shove him into a glider and call it good. Yeah. And y- you know that scene where him and his buddy are pinned down in that... God, I think it was like the upper part of a shed, it looked like, of a house or something. And they, like, look out the window to escape, and there's just this tank crew parked, and everyone's just loitering about. And he's like, oh, we can't escape. A day passes, reinforcement comes, and they get the drop on the germs and kill them all. Did, did they seriously just stay there an entire day and night? Like, don't get me wrong. I mean, that is fully within the what I believe of the military and how it works for a commander to say, Stit, sit and stay here, tank crew, and they just smoke and drink right, <laughs> and not let our protagonist leave. Yeah, I feel like at this point in the battle... German tank crews were not just chilling out. I'm pretty sure they had some marching orders to go take care yeah, of business. Like, is there not a point that you need to be in your tank and on alert for? You just need to be a nuisance here. 
I don't know. Speaking of Sean Connery and looking out windows, do you remember the scene <laughs> where, uh, where he's like, he's dragged one of his injured men into a house and uh, the local Dutch people are working on him and you see Sean Connery and then it immediately pans to him, like pulling his sidearm out and he unloads his entire pistol through this window and there's a German on the outside of the window that just happened to walk by and like... Mm-hmm. He doesn't fall after the first or second shot. He like he does the dramatic like uh, 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 every <laughs> single bullet must be dramatic. Yep. That was probably the biggest role film role he had up until that point. He had to milk it. He was mm-hmm. he was not going to waste that opportunity. No. Nope. He had not he had five seconds of screen time and he was going to sell it. Yep, God, not when I the studio big wigs are looking. Yeah, feel every round. But I I have a list here pulled up of the potential actors that have been offered roles in this movie. Uh, Julian Cook, that role was originally offered to Steve McQueen, but oh, wow. he wasn't interested. Steve McQueen yep. was almost in this film? He was almost oh. in this film, but he wasn't interested in the part they were offering. And next was... Audrey Hepburn. And I'm guessing what she is was, like a Dutch civilian or something? Kate Terhorst. Kate Terhorst. So she might have been the uh, Dutch wife that they set up that impromptu hospital in, you know? Oh, might yeah. have been her. But her reasoning was that it hit too close to home because she lived near Arnheim during the battle itself during World War II. What? And Audrey Hepburn? Yeah, she's Dutch. Hmm. But I thought she was already a like a big name actress nope. by the Not time. Not in the 40s. Not in the 40s. Didn't, she was still a girl. Didn't Howard Hughes date Audrey Hepburn? I'm okay. I mean Yeah, to, let's not get into this that. Is going to, you know what? I'm go, I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah, I'll, she was like I'll I'll check it later, but I was like, wait a minute. She Howard like Hughes four... def, definitely well, I mean, he dated a lot of actresses, but I was like, wait a minute. Th- th- it just doesn't sound right. But you know what? I'll, I will go for it for the time being. Yeah, she was like 14 or 15 when this movie took place. Uh, she was born in 29. And yes, I looked it up. Okay. But, um, what was I going to so say? She oh, was, yeah. She, she, she was going to be Kate Terhorst. Don't remember who that was, but I assume it was that Dutch housewife whose house they mm. set up the hospital, whatever. But another name that they offered was Robert De Niro for Staff Sergeant Eddie Dohoon. Really? Hmm. Ch- uh, Charles Bronson was seriously considered for the role of Stanislaw Sosabowski. Oh, the uh, Polish commander? Yep. And How do you... What do you think he thinks of the Germans? <laughs> He's a bit mixed, I bet. But on the topic of James Bond in this movie, Roger Moore was initially cast as Lieutenant General Brian Horrocks, but was unable to appear when problems surrounding the Bond franchise meant that The Spy Who Loved Me was made a year later than originally planned, therefore coinciding with production. 
So scheduling conflict then. Yep, scheduling conflict. In addition, Horrocks had approval over the character and turned more down, and the role instead went to Edward Fox, who nailed it. So yeah, that as star-studded as the cast was, it could have been even more star-studded. That's just kind of blows my mind, honestly. Crazy. The other the other thing that blows my mind about this film is so you have all these big name stars. If you watch the post credit scenes, the technical advisors that they have are the actual guys who who were here, like General Gavin, the leader of uh, wait, he he was the leader of the 82nd, right? Anyways, he was a technical advisor on this film. And to me, that is just insane, because, you know, obviously today, you know, they've long since passed, but it's so weird to think that at the time that this movie is being made that they have guys who are being advisors on the film about themselves basically and i remember watching a interview with anthony hopkins where the real uh colonel frost was also like he wasn't an advisor to the film he was just an advisor to anthony hopkins like they brought him in just to tell him how to act the way he did during the battle (laughs) and uh that's actually the you know going back to the bridge surrender scene originally anthony hopkins was supposed to say sorry i can't take your surrender and uh, the real colonel frost was like my care i never said that you can't have my character say that otherwise everybody I served with is going to think that I'm trying to prop myself up and make myself out to be a bigger hero than I really was. So that's why it gets transferred over to his subordinate to say that stuff. Mm. Cause he was like, cause eventually they're like, well, this is going to be a line in the movie regardless. Like, how are we going to do this that you're comfortable with it? And he's like, my character can be in the scene. He's just not going to be the one that says it. And they're like, okay, we can deal with that. Um, that's interesting but on the on the flip side of that too is there's a scene where we get anthony hopkins like running across the street dodging machine gun fire and uh, apparently anthony hopkins was told by colonel frost he's like you're running too fast and anthony hopkins was like what what is like no as as a british officer you have to show a certain amount of decorum and stiff upper lip and you have to have an almost flagrant disregard to danger to be an inspiration to your men as well as you know giving the finger to jerry and i was like okay so so pretending to say something like we can't take your surrender that's not cool because that's playing it up too much but (laughs) but portraying yourself as running while being shot at that's that's out of bounds that it is such a weird dichotomy <clears throat> right <clears throat> i mean yeah you got to be accurate and <laughs> if he if the man says so reminds me of a story i'm trying to think of the name of the man he's he's not not in the movie but uh oh what was his name mad jack something um churchill yeah that's him isn't that your uh, stripper name jack it's it's jack the stripper but continue blake (laughs) man uh what was it he uh charged into combat i don't think it was a long claymore in a bagpipe claymore 
That's it. A claymore and a bagpipe. That's it. Oh, I recall this guy now. Mm -hmm. He was at the... He yeah, was he, was, the, he was at the Norman at the Normandy yeah, he was, invasion. Yep. He was at the Normandy invasion. And when he got off the landing boat, he was playing his bagpipe. That's and right. no and he what didn't get shot. And he later asked one of the POWs, like, why didn't you guys shoot me? I was such an easy target. And they he responded simply, We thought you were insane. <laughs> <laughs> what a man. I'm curious about you always hear about people like bringing in personal weapons and stuff. I So my dad, he served in the, the Air Force for 20 plus years. And I remember a story he told me once where they were getting a briefing before um, Operation Iraqi Freedom and somebody in a squadron asked the higher ups and they were like, can we bring our own guns? And the higher ups were like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> and it just makes you think about Maybe it was a simpler time back in the day where you could just bring a a broadsword to, to combat and nobody would say anything to you. Oh, definitely. That's like that scene. Uh, I, I hate to be the one to always bring bring up Band of Brothers, but yeah, that scene where... Uh, it's, a great, it's a great book and a great series. Oh, it absolutely is. Absolutely is. My, my favorite of all time. But... Uh, Oh, I don't. We're thinking about it making it a Patreon exclusive. If you if you have any interest in joining us for that, so definitely. Anyway, he gets mailed the uh, the pistol from the police chief of his town where he's from, and I'm like, if you tried to do that today, if you tried to mail a pistol somewhere, <laughs> you would immediately be put on some sort of list or one straightway ticket to Guantanamo. Like, <laughs> yeah, couldn't do it today. I would like to make a quick disclaimer before I make this statement. I have never shipped anything illegally through the United States Postal Service. Uh -huh. However, hypothetically, I have never felt more anxious than sending, quote unquote, cooking sherry through the mail to a friend of mine. Well, yeah, it's for cooking. Cooking or whatever. It just <laughs> had a... It had a very high proof, and I feel like the Postal Service might have disapproved of it. <laughs> Especially because they... Well, they ask you when you, like, bring your package in. Anything liquid, flammable, da 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 da, -da And you're like, no. As you, like, slide it across the desk. It's not flammable if you don't have anything flammable around it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not flammable until it is. <laughs> yeah there you go and it's for cooking right it's it's like uh the british paratroopers bringing their flamethrower it's not flammable until you use <laughs> exactly. it dropping with cooking sherry <laughs> my yeah speaking of flamethrowers my, my favorite thing I, every time i watch this movie i always see them on, on the planes and they're just every single one of them smoking a cigarette and like <laughs> i'm a cigarette smoker too but mine it's like the minute i get down on the drop zone and i get back to the truck you know sit down my parachute i'm like ah time you know and i light up a cigarette and stand and wait for everybody else to get back but like i'm watching these guys smoke on the plane and i'm like i would give anything to be able to smoke a cigarette before i jump lucky so what you're saying is that you haven't submitted a a policy recommendation to the team for historical accuracy's sake to allow smoking. Uh, you know, yeah. that, that sounds like a fair idea, but knowing the board, I think that would be thoroughly and completely shot down. 
I, uh, <clears throat> I, I was smoking on the back of one of the trucks, uh, on the way back to the hangar, you know, I saw so I'm at the very back of the truck, you know, it's an open top truck. So the wind's blowing. I was smoking on the back of the truck and I, I got a, uh, a firm talking to for, for smoking around the, the, uh, the parachutes, even though I was being cautious, but still you have mm-hmm. to understand. So, and yeah, I don't know so- how that would go. So are you a purist when you're out at jump school and do you do like lucky strikes or do you just stick to whatever your modern brand is? You, you know, actually when I go out there, I take the unfiltered camels. You can still buy them at gas stations. I, I can't find the lucky strikes anywhere. I've got some friends up North that can get them, but uh, if we're going to go down that route, I actually do roll my own unfiltered cigarettes, like the old huh. bugler rolling tobacco Cowboy and stuff, but. Uh, I was going to say, I, I'm pretty sure there's a place or two around here that sells Lucky Strikes. It's still you know, not going to stop me. After the, after the show, we... There. I was going to say, after the show, we can we can discuss arrangements. Definitely. Because I can't um, find Luckies anywhere down here. Just the camels. Man. <laughs> Rolling your own cigarettes. I was a cowboy for 20 years, and I still never did that. <laughs> no kidding. So yeah, I, man, worked, I worked with horses. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. Basically born in probably. the saddle. Yeah, Jack, uh, him and his family have a pretty substantial cattle ranch that they operate. No yep. kidding. And the great, the great yeah. state of South Dakota. And I've got the scars to prove it. I hear you, man. That's awesome. That's, that's my whole life has been horses and now jumping out of airplanes. <laughs> the two go hand in hand the two go hand in hand you know yeah. I, I uh <laughs> land into the saddle parachuting all. jack is also missing a couple of toes because of it yeah amputee yeah i heard about your missing toes a couple podcasts ago yeah yeah the piggies went to market piggies went to market that's uh, the, which podcast was that i don't even remember it i don't remember which one it was man i listened to all y'all's but i can't remember which one it was yeah, my first tattoo was the piggies gone to market sign. <laughs> Man, um, back to the cigarettes for a minute. Funny story. So uh, you were talking about smoking cigarettes. And um, so first couple times that I jumped this past April, our drop zone had been moved to, to a fully grown wheat field. Basically, we're jumping into waist high wheat. And I had no idea at the time that I was extremely allergic to wheat. I mean, not like, uh, not like barely allergic. I'm talking like face turn red, sneeze 150 times in a row. So I land, you know, PLF, roll over. I got drugged by my canopy a little bit because the wind's real high. So I did what's called popping a, popping a cape well, which is when you pull this little assembly, it's on your shoulder and it releases that, that, uh, that riser, which is, essentially what leads up to the canopy and it keeps you from getting drug around in the field. Excuse me. And so the minute I stood up, I was like, Oh, something's wrong. Uh, and just started sneezing 150 times, (laughs) got my canopy packed up. I mean, they could hear me from the trucks. It was just one sneeze after another. And I get back to the truck and one of the guys who was jumping with us is, is kind of our, hanger doctor his name is is doc doc halligan he's uh to my knowledge a, a surgeon of 30 years and real real cool guy re- real real nice to talk to 
And so I'm sitting there, I get back to the truck and I'm holding a handkerchief to my nose. But of course, being a good tobacco user, I've already lit a cigarette, you know, <laughs> sneezing and all. And so I look over to Doc Halligan and I go, Doc, uh, what can I do to, to help this? Because like I'm, I'm miserable right now, sneezing my head off and snot coming out and whole nine yards. And he points the cigarette and he goes, you know, putting that out would probably help you. Like that's uh that's not helping you right now. <laughs> I took one more big hit and I was like, oh, you know, that's probably not it. Oh, <laughs> uh, that, that's a hell of a way to find out you're allergic to something is jumping straight into it. Oh man, it was terrible. I got back to the hangar and everybody was looking at me like, are you okay? Like they thought like I was tearing up because I got injured or something. And I was like, no, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just sneezing my head off went to the bathroom and blew my I'm nose just, and all that sort I'm of stuff. I'm just and, so happy. Yeah, I'm just so happy. It was a good job. <laughs> went back up and jumped again that afternoon, man. I was, uh, went right back to the sneeze and I knew it was the week because by the time I got back on the plane, I was fine. And I was like, okay, if the sneezing kicks back up this time, it's the week. Got back down there, landed within two seconds. I was right back to sneezing. So I was like, damn, achoo, we achoo. <laughs> Oh man, and they, they. Um, I know when you're a kid, they do that like pin test. They didn't think to test for wheat for you. Oh man, see, they, they, see if you're like a celiac or something. I, I'm telling everybody, I've got a gluten allergy now, just not in the way you think. No, yeah, it's, I, it's easier to explain to people. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I'm allergic, but also not really. Yeah, your glute, your gluten allergy is a lot less pretentious. Exactly. A yeah, it's less... justified. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm, uh, I have this thing. So you've heard of that thing where you can't, or well, you you can taste cilantro, but it tastes like soap. Have you heard of that? I uh, know I haven't. That's well, the first I've heard of it. Twelve yeah. percent of the population has this gene where they. When they eat cilantro, they only taste soap. Really? And I'm one of the 12%. And people are always shocked when I say, oh, yeah, I, I don't I don't like cilantro. Could I get that without cilantro? And when I tell them that, they're like, oh, your genetics are weak and blah, blah, blah. Or what do you, how can you not like cilantro? So I've just taken to telling people that I'm allergic to cilantro. Yeah. It's, my, it's, it's my just My wife's easier. the same way. She, Wait, really? Yeah, Miranda, she... Uh cilantro tastes weird to her so also guess how i found out coriander seeds are from the same plant <laughs> you know that's uh that's something i didn't know yep i just bit into it soap <laughs> so that's so speaking two. of uh medic so speaking of medical maladies what did we think about the scene where uh the captain who had been shot in the head gets brought into the aid station and then the uh the loyal sergeant threatens the the doctor to uh basically i'm going to shoot you if you don't look at my buddy and then it turns out oh he's actually still alive yeah that was like man that was like the one percent of the one percent of cases in that situation where he lived right like I was, I, mm. that's that scene frustrated me because i i've worked in ems before and just under the basic understanding of how like medical triage works 
if you got a dude who's coming in with a bullet wound to the head, like I, I don't blame the doctor one bit for being like next, you know, mm -hmm. like how many other people could I save with, you know, the time. allotted? Yeah. Like with half as serious of injuries as this guy with the same amount of time, like I I'm totally, you know, I think it makes for a great story that this individual ended up actually surviving. Um, but also it's one of those, I'm like, I appreciate the loyalty part of this story, but also I'm not one bit mad at the doctor for being like, get him out of here. <laughs> but you'd at least try, right? Well, I would at least check for a pulse first. I wouldn't immediately say no, but yeah. And I, I assume with that job, you just have to learn how to turn off. Right. Well, yeah, you have to imagine that that dude probably had been working for like 24 or 48 hours straight of just nonstop, you know, patching people up. Mm -hmm. And then you have you have a guy who is like, please save my buddy. And it's a bullet wound to the head. And, you know, I think anyone any one of us watching that scene when he originally picks him up off the battlefield, we're like, oh, he's he's gone, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. shot to the head in those conditions and the amount of time it took for him to get back. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be optimistic, but the fact that he pulled through is nothing short of amazing. Right. And it was that guy in the one of the opening scenes, right, where he was like drinking the whiskey and the other dude's like, oh, you let me get that for you intentionally picks it up upside down so it pours out and hands it to him mm -hmm. <laughs> i think uh i think if he had poured out my whiskey that would have been that would have been a fight in terms if he had oh out yeah especially in those circumstances it wouldn't have been easy to get i say Shot. that as i look at my bottle of whiskey sitting here on the table <laughs> Oh, whiskey isn't good for you. Well, neither is war. <laughs> <laughs> my coaster literally says my, my coaster literally says courage is a vitamin best swallowed with whiskey. <laughs> helps it go yeah, helps it go down. Yeah, I don't know how well it helps you get uh get over a gunshot wound in the head though. <laughs> Stiff upper lip. Stiff upper lip. And yet yeah, no, that scene, I always loved the, the, the fact of how, you know, him pulling the pistol on the doctor really got the doctor, and then the doctor gets him back by being so serious going up to the, the MP. Like, you're, you're going to arrest this man and keep him for a, a maximum of 10 seconds. I was like, wait, what? 10 <laughs> seconds? I also just love how confused the MP was in that scene. He's like, what? Huh? What? Yeah, like, what do you mean? That means count to 10 really fast. <laughs> right. Oh. <laughs> uh, so, I know I, I've mentioned a bunch of scenes that I really liked. Is there a scene that we haven't discussed that either one of you thought was really good or, or really powerful? Just that final shot of the Dutch family walking away from their home. And you just see their silhouettes and the kid, I think it, you presumably playing soldier with that stick. 
and then just before he's out of frame it just stops on him and then credits roll that was beautifully shot that was a great great scene and they even like told the woman like oh this is just going to be a temporary thing this is just the few of us and then before she knows that her house is an entire hospital yeah the thing that really got me in that scene was uh when the first couple of soldiers walk into the house you see uh like a model train set going around some tracks on the carpet and then you see just a couple of blood drops hit the carpet around it that reminds you of what's going on in this moment Mm-hmm. I thought that was a, a very, a very well shot scene. Absolutely. So I, I, I don't know. Oh, don't go know. ahead. No, no, I insist. I, I don't know why this one scene uh, where they've just landed and you see the insane asylum patients come walking out of the woods <laughs> and you know, that they, they uh, he explains it to, to him that in, insane asylum got, got hit by artillery and or bombs and and they got you know they escaped that that one older fella that that was saluting them as they walked past i don't know why but that always hits me every time like like maybe he was a war veteran of previous war previous conflict and you know that's why he was in that asylum is he you know couldn't keep hold of his mind shell shock you know ptsd whatever you want to call it but uh i don't know why just that that one scene is always kind of harrowing for me yeah man wait did did you look up the insane asylum thing and if it actually happened uh, part of me says yes no but i i i don't doubt it the the thing is is that this film it's so a bridge too far was originally a book um but when they made this movie granted there's there's inaccuracies in every movie that's made about history but they they really what's the way i want to put it they wanted they went to great pains to be accurate but not they went to great pains to get the story correct even if minor details weren't completely accurate if that makes sense so it's like if we're going to throw if we're going to throw in the like two or three seconds of a chicken being on a glider and that turns out to be true i have zero doubts that the insane asylum thing also is true yeah and um getting back to my point from earlier about audrey i looked it up she is a british citizen but she was born in brussels to a dutch baroness and then I and I quote an I Anglo Irish near do well. Uh, okay, father father walked out on when she was young. Her subsequent adolescence in German occupied Netherlands was quite traumatizing. She helped the local resistance, witnessed deportation of Jews, and almost died of malnutrition during the hunger winter caused by the German blockade. So really rough start for somebody who would go on to be a such a superstar as she was yeah it also just goes to show like nobody was was left untouched by by this conflict Mm -hmm. yeah 
and I brought up earlier, that's such a, that's a thing like our generation has in common. Like most of the millennials I know had grandparents that were in that war involved in it somehow. I think it was like, like what, 10 million some American men fought then? Well, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I mentioned on the, was it? No, it was the one before the last one when we did Wind Talkers. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I had a, a great uncle who fought on Saipan, but I also had um, a great uncle who was a B-17 tail gunner. I had another great uncle who... Um, he served in the Navy during World War II. I don't remember exactly where, but, you know, it's, you know, if, if you, if you met the minimum requirements, then you were doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. How about you, Blake? Do you have, fam did you have family in that war? So I, I personally did not have any family, but I could honestly say the guys that I've gotten to know who did serve, they might as well be family, minus the blood relation. Two of them for me, uh, one of them is a man by the name of Robert Leslie Smith. Mr. Smith's got an incredible story. I, I, knew, the, I knew the man up and until he passed at the age of 99. He was third in command on a troop transport ship, the USS President Adams. It was a Liberty ship that took Marines to the Pacific, <coughs> excuse me, during the war. Uh, the man was there and saw the the initial invasion of Iwo Jima, saw the flag raising over Mount Suribachi. And this this man, I, I got to know him when I was 12, 13, 14 years old. I would go see him once a month. Uh, I, I, it's one of the, the cool things that I get to say about my life is I got taught, taught to drive stick shift on a 1943 Willis Jeep by a World War II veteran. Uh, man owned a owned a Willis Jeep and taught me to drive stick on it. So that's badass. Him and I, we, I would go out to his place once a month, and you know we'd go drive the Jeep, or he'd show me any one of his other cars that he had. He had Ford Model T, Ford Model A. Uh, he had a bunch of cars. That, that that was that was his passion, and so I got to go out and just sit and talk with him. Every story you could think of, fighting off you know kamikazes and. Betty Bombers and uh, incredible, incredible stories. Uh, I'll share with you a brief story, and then I want to tell you about another gentleman. One of these stories was uh, when he was, so he was third in command on the USS President Adams. He was the gunnery commander. And on the first day uh, of their involvement during Iwo Jima, they, they had six spare barrels for every gun on the ship. Uh, you know, these twin Beaufort's cannons. Uh, they had six spare barrels and they melted every single barrel on the first day. Jeez. They were melted beyond wow. repair and they had to move their ship into a reserve position. Um, and so from that reserve position is when he saw the, the raising of the flag over Suribachi. So just think about that, man. You go to some of these museum ships, if ever you see those spare barrels inside of them, you know, next time you go out to one or if you ever get the chance to go out to one of these museum ships and you see the the uh, Beaufort's cannons. I don't remember if it's 20 millimeter or 40 millimeter. I think it's 20 millimeter. I may be wrong on that. But... I think, I think the Beauforts are forties. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Correctly. Next time you look at those barrels, just imagine those things getting melted. I mean, it's a pretty big barrel to, to, you know, you have to be putting a lot, of, a lot of rounds through that sort of thing to melt it. So they were, they were laying some hate downrange, but uh, an, another veteran that I was very close to, 
uh, was a man by the name of Jack Labid. Uh, Jack, I'm actually uh, close with his, his son, uh, Larry Labid. And, and so Jack, Jack was a radio operator on a B-29 that uh, flew combat missions over Japan during World War II, stationed in Saipan and Guam. And uh, this man had just incredible stories, incredible stories of the war. You, you look at some of his log books and uh, he yeah, early in the war that they were at higher altitudes, you know, they were a, a B-29. So it was a, a cabin that can handle higher altitudes, you know, 25,000, 30,000 feet. And later on in the war, because they were missing targets, they got lower and lower to the ground, you know, 15,000, 10,000, 8,000, 5,000 feet. And as he gets lower, you know, his, his uh, records and his log gets more and more grim. You know, there was one notation that I read from him that said, this is an official log of, of that day's mission where he says, uh, today's today, we only lost five other crews, five other B-29 crews. So he says, today, we only oh lost five other crews. It was a relatively light day. And you think, man, wow. five B-29s went down and that was light losses to him. Wow. Yeah. Uh, to kind of wrap up to cool story about, about both of those guys. I actually took pictures with me of uh, both of them. I had their pictures laminated and I jumped with them back in April. So I put them inside of my jacket and jumped with them. And uh, just as kind of a remembrance of them and in honor of them, had them with me on that jump. And then inside of our C-47 boogie baby, her fuselage is lined with the pictures of, of veterans that have come to visit her or veterans that are important to team members. So if you go inside of that plane or if you see pictures of her, you'll see all these photographs lining the fuselage and some of them are accompanied by signatures. Um, I got the honor of getting to put both of those pictures of both Jack Labid and Robert Leslie Smith inside of Boogie Baby. So they're forever memorialized inside of the plane. And cool little note about that was Jack Labid's um, uh, widow, his, 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 uh, so Larry Labid's, uh, mom, she, she told me, she said, you know, it's really special that I put his picture up inside of that plane because he'll forever be up in the sky, you know, where he wanted to be. So it was just really special to get to do that, to honor those guys. That's no, amazing. That's, that is really great. And that's great that you had those kinds of relationships. I know, uh, I always think about, I, I don't have kids at the moment. That's uh, a little bit down the road, but um, that is something I think about is who are the, the people that are going to be role models for, you know, my potential future children, right. who are, who are the people that are going to have those stories that inspire them to do stuff. Cause like you, I, I grew up, I grew up at a time where there was an abundance of World War II veterans. I uh, I lived on a Air Force base because, like I said earlier, my dad was active duty. Right. And, uh, you know, every time you went to the PX or, you know, you went to Domino's or whatever, the guy in front of you, World War II vet, you know, right. guy behind you in line at the coffee shop, World War II vet, Korea vet, what have you. Um, so it was always they're they're everywhere and you really kind of take for granted their presence until you know we're we're at the point where there's there's so few of them left now because you know they're getting into their 
upper 90s, low 100s now. Um, my own, for our listeners, I know this is probably our longest episode yet, but uh, my own personal connection to why I love this film so much is uh, I actually, when I lived on the Air Force Base, there was a museum there that I volunteered at, which really started my my love for history. And uh, you guys can't see it, but I'm showing a picture to uh, both Jack and Blake. But I was actually on a restoration crew Wow! for at this museum. And uh, at the time we were there, we the museum obtained a, a C-47 that we worked on and uh, restored to its static display status. And it's uh, the C-47 Okie Dokie. And that's at awesome. Travis Air Force Base. So... Although I've never jumped out of an airplane or done anything cool like that, I I do have a, a strong attachment to the subject. Absolutely, man, that's incredible. You got to be a part of that. Uh, that's that's a that's a beautiful plane. You you said the name of it was Okie Dokie. Yep, it's Okie Dokie. Um, it was a C forty seven that actually participated in the Normandy invasion. Uh, the squadron that that airplane was attached to um, is most likely believed to, <coughs> if I remember correctly, it carried the 502nd into Normandy. Gotcha. Gotcha. Man, I'm sure you can attest to it. When you're around a plane like that, you, you can just feel, I don't know how to describe it, but you can feel some sort of life to the plane. I, I, I know it's an inanimate object to most people and it sounds a little bit kumbaya, but no, they, around, they they definitely have their own personalities, you know. I, I believe it. You if you spend enough time around, you know, I I think any object of significance um can can take on a personality if you, if you spend enough time with it. Yep. I hundred percent believe it. When when I'm around our planes at ADT, I, I don't know what it is, but you you feel some sort of soul when you're around them, when you get get inside of them and, and the, the engines are running. Man, it's it's uh, it's the closest I think I've ever felt to, to, to God when I'm around those planes. Like one of the most special moments for me when I'm at ADT is when an ADT airborne demonstration team, for those who, who, who don't know, um, when I'm out there, early morning jumps, sun's coming up, you know, you've been rigged up, you're in your parachute in the harness and engines are already on on the plane and there's that smell of aviation gasoline in the air and you go, you're already in what we call stick order, which is the order at which you get on the plane. Um, you go to get on the plane and the engines are running and sun's rising in the distance and that propeller blast starts hitting you in the face as you go to get on the plane something about just the, the, the wind of it hitting you and the, you know, Oklahoma sun coming up and the smell of the aviation fuel and the smell of old airplanes like that. You get on that plane and you're surrounded by these pictures of these men who actually jumped into combat and their signatures, like uh, just tons of, tons of signatures of these men. It's something about it, man. It's just, it, it, there is, there is a soul to those airplanes and you can feel it. It's, it, it's a feeling that is almost indescribable. I bet. Oh man. <clears throat> like you're part of a long chain of tradition. Right. I mean, it's, it's almost like the planes themselves are alive. If, if only they could tell 
tell the stories they've seen. You know, it's sounds when, great. When I look at other, you know, inanimate objects, I, I don't think of it as a as a she or a you know him. I just say it. But those plans, I'm like, man, you know, she's she's looking good today, or she. It's it's like they're alive. That that's genuinely how right. I think of it. Just alive with that history, what they've seen. No, it's uh, it's definitely a, an interesting perspective, and uh, I hope we're not a couple of weirdos, and I, I hope that our listeners who don't really delve into this side of uh, the world as far as hobbies go has a similar feeling for whatever they're into, but I, I, can't, I can't imagine we're the only ones that feel this way about the things no. we're passionate about. No. I Jack, do you, do you feel that way about horses or... Not particularly. Oh, okay. I do like horses, though. They're nice beasts. Man, yeah, I got to ride for the first time in a couple months, a couple weeks ago. And that felt great. So uh, I, I think I think we've uh, hit the part of our show where we need to to rate this film, unless we have any other things we wanted to hit on it. Other than the fact that I thought the the music in this movie was fantastic, but scored a, very well. Oh yeah, especially that upbeat or orchestral number when they're crossing the bridges. Just man, really gets your blood pumping. <laughs> well, other than um, that one quote I read, that was like Montgomery was the greatest German commander they ever had. It's a pity he was on our <laughs> side. <laughs> but like i said i don't know enough about the war uh the um, operation market garden and its outcome to fully weigh in on this and i know it's one of the most controversial battles of the entire war but it's just thought that was worth mentioning <laughs> no it's it's definitely a, a point of debate that will probably exist forever from oh, yep. that point on but uh jack do you got ron tomatoes pulled up i do actually so the tomometer for this movie is 61 percent however the audience score for this movie is 86 percent which i know i sound like a broken record at this point but i'd say the audience are more right on this one than the critics hmm. yeah i would agree with that so what we're looking at is an average of like 74 ish i'm guessing yeah that's um yeah i i'd I'm give not, this movie, i'm not a math expert i'd give this movie about a 90 percent anyone a 90 percent no. or or <laughs> no our custom rating today is going to be based on chickens how many chickens is this movie jack i was I was going to give it five bridges out of five, but if you're going to do that, I'll give it five chickens. <laughs> there were only five. three bridges. Okay, fine. Chicken. Well, there was only one chicken if you want to go down. Whatever. But five chickens. Yeah. How many How many chickens is this Five Five chickens out of five. Yeah. <laughs> there. Happy? I, I, give this, I, was... I give this four parachickens and one chicken that's been shot up. Okay. <laughs> That's just cruel. <laughs> it happens to the real chicken. I, Man, I the only reason I'm dinging it is because there's just a couple of editing mistakes that really stick out 
Yeah. But other th- other than that, I thought this was a fantastic film. Highly recommend it. I this is the kind of film that I can see myself sitting down and watching at least once a year. This this is the kind of film that when I come back to it in the future to watch it, like I'm going to make myself a steak, like a really nice dinner, it's like steak, potatoes, all the good stuff and some whiskey. And I'm like, I'm going to make it an event because, you know, our, our last viewing, we took it over two days and uh, I don't know, this, this movie deserves your attention. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're going to watch this movie, take the, take the three hour block. Don't, don't have any interruptions, make yourself a nice dinner and just experience it that's that's the way i see it i think it's a great film what what do you think blake how many how how many chickens i I definitely think it gets five out of five pair of chickens for me um i think maybe one of those chickens had a bad landing somewhere in there yeah but but, you know still five out of five they made it um it's moving a pair of chicken that lost a couple of feathers yeah, a couple of feathers. It happens. Um, this movie for me, I mean, it's just it's an airborne classic. You know, there's there's not a single single guy who doesn't have an appreciation for for this uh, style of parachuting who doesn't look at this movie and just say, "Man, that's freaking awesome!" You know, j- just the jump scenes in particular, but the history in general. For me, it's just the scale of the movie. Um, I love to see things done on such a scale as, as this. And uh, for, for me, I, I absolutely love it. I love, love every, every, every bit of it. The, the, the good outweighs the bad, so to speak. Yeah. So that's a f- fair assessment. It is. And I thought I was being clever giving this movie a 90%. <laughs> but no one <laughs> laughed. Because we take this seriously. Yeah, this is this podcast is serious business. I'm sorry for forgetting. <laughs> I will say, pair, I think Pair Chickens is better than our PBR rating for the the last film. <laughs> <laughs> and the last one was a good one. It was. Is it that was a, a is that film. out yet? No, that comes out uh, this coming Friday. What, so, what was this? What was this Friday's episode? This last Friday. Uh, two days ago okay for for the people at home are the day that we record an episode and the day we release it there's a little bit of lag time in between it we purposely did that for the sake of in case of scheduling conflicts that way we could maintain our weekly release schedule and not be hindered so at the time we're recording this the episode that was just released was the alamo so blake you, you obviously you haven't heard it because nobody has but mm. when we, re- we reference our pbr rating it is for we reviewed the movie the greatest beer run ever and that's coming out this upcoming release date our first gotcha. vietnam movie and it was yeah, an amazing I, one if i do say so myself i i enjoyed the uh, the rating metric that y'all used on the <laughs> uh, down periscope one I mean, uh, it really is our Citizen Kane at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the- I, 
I just I here's the thing. I I love two types of films. I love airplane films and I love submarine films. And Definitely. I just I'm surprised. You, you know, obviously we try to get variety in here, but I really have to stop myself from every time it's my turn to pick to be like submarine. Right. You forgot. You forgot the third type of movie you like, and it's stoner films. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there is that. <laughs> That's right. I remember college. <laughs> you know, the shocking thing is, is, despite my love for stoner films, I've never partaken in the ganja. So, <laughs> John is straight edge. Such a waste as you can of tell by the as you can tell by the Sailor Jerry's he's been drinking. I don't know. I have a I have a tattoo of a Snoopy smoking a cigar on myself at this bad angle, but I'm not I'm not opposed to things that are detrimental to your health. I will tell other people not to, but for myself, I I'll defile my body. Yeah, I'd never recommend drugs, booze, and rock and roll to anyone, but they've worked pretty well for me so far. <laughs> So, Jack, what is our, it's your turn this week. What is our, our next film? I'm glad you asked. And it's one of my favorite films. It's a film that I, if I see, if it's on TV, I will drop everything to watch it. It's one of those movies. It's the seminal 90s sci-fi classic Starship Troopers. Oh, yeah. You're damn right. Yes, sir. <laughs> Would you like to know more? Oh, please, yeah. please tell me. Well, I, next week I we'll be doing our part. This... <laughs> Service guarantee citizenship. Yep, and it's fitting too because they just came out with the early access release FPS Steam game that me and my buddies have been playing. And the entire time, the chat is nothing but those memes like service guarantees citizenship. Or, I'm doing my part. Uh, you know, it's our first Paul Verhoeven film. I'm, and our I'm first sci-fi film. It is. And it's also our first film that's not actually based in reality. So <laughs> it's going to be a you episode because I, I have no historical input on it. Wait, wait a minute. The Alamo happened. Oh man, I, I, just, I, I just pissed off the entire Texas listening base. <laughs> oh yeah, all four of them. <laughs> there, yeah. That's right, Texas. I see our, intense. I see our numbers. Ooh. <laughs> but yes, this I like uh, for wrapping this this one up. This this film was very good. I'm glad we watched it, and I'm glad we watched it together. And we had an amazing guest this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, you guys. Happy to be here, and thank you all for having me. I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed it, and I'm glad that the fact that you listened to our stuff beforehand didn't, you know, scare you off. So, No. Matter of fact, maybe you want to hop on more. You guys are fun all to right. talk to and fun to be around. My kind of people. Every Every time I talk, I you know, I've been talking to a couple of different people trying to get guests, and uh, every time I talk to them, there's always a point in the conversation where it's like, yeah, send me a link to your stuff, and I'm like, you sure you don't want to just come on and <laughs> risk it for the biscuit? 
<laughs> oh man that's great stuff I, I listened to it a couple times i do a lot of driving for work you know between appointments and listen to it on the drive and enjoyed every second of it man now we just got to get you out to adt and kick you out of an airplane so <laughs> you know what i'd be i'd be down you know what, yeah. deal. we so we have a. I started a youtube channel before i i started this and it's called uh history apprentice but History Apprentice is where you can also find our, our podcast on YouTube. But you know what? If if you guys actually accept me into ADT, I would be more than happy to to do some videos. You know what? Maybe we can we could do a, a podcast out in the hangar bay and and do some some airborne related film. We can make that happen. That that would be awesome. And I'm telling you guys, it's it's a once in a lifetime thing. You know, it's man, if I could jump every day of my life, it's, it's terrifying. But, but once you get past that initial fear, it's the greatest thing you'll ever do. But even just seeing the hangar, man, it's, it's incredible. So we'd love to have y'all out there. We'd love to have y'all come out and visit. I'd love to. We'd love to, and we'd love to have you back on the show. Anytime, man, anytime. All you got to do is ask me. It gives me a, a good reason to get to visit with some good guys and Drink a little bit of whiskey on the side. Hell too. yeah. I don't do that too often at home. Sounds good. Before we sign off, uh, I know the, the reason I found you was through the, the social media. So if you want to, you want to plug your, your social media accounts, if you want to plug the, the team's accounts, have at it, you know, Absolutely. I'm sure we all, we all want those extra followers. So you bet shameless plug time. So, <laughs> So my personal Instagram for the team is knees to the breeze, just how it sounds. Uh, that's my personal page where I just kind of share some of my stories of parachuting with the team. Uh, as far as the World War II airborne demonstration go, airborne demonstration team goes, anybody can sign up to come to a jump school. You don't have to be prior military. You just have to be physically capable to do it and have the want to do it. Um, so as far as that goes, you can look up the website, uh, www.iiadt.org. So that's World War II Airborne Demonstration Team.org. Um, if you look us up on there, um, there's tons of information about the team, tons of information about the school. Um, you can reach out to me personally through that page as well, that Knees to the Breeze page on Instagram. And it we'd love to have anybody who wants to come out, come on out. You know, it's, it's, it's a great team to be a part of. It's, it's, it's one of those organizations that you get experiences you, you, you can't get anywhere else. For instance, I'll, I'll share with you a really short thing after I got my five jumps, <clears throat> which you have to get five jumps to graduate school. Um, after I got five jumps, I had my wings, my gold airborne demonstration team wings pinned to my chest by a Korean war veteran who did a combat jump into Korea. His name is wow. Jerry Ring. So just to get the opportunity to have a, a war veteran who actually did it, you know, pin those wings onto my chest was something I'll never forget. So anybody who wants to come out, come out and join us. It's, it's, it's anybody who wants to come, they can. Wow. <laughs> that, that is great. amazing. That was an incredible plug. That's far greater than any yep. plug I've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> Better than our non-existent sponsors. <laughs> and that's with the whiskey. Our show, involved. which was not brought to you by Lucky Strike or Sailor Jerry today or whatever hey, no. nonsense <laughs> you were drinking, Jack. Or Neon Burst. 
You know what? Neon burst. I will gladly take your money. Yeah. Hell. If, if you get, if you could possibly get a sponsorship from lucky strike, I would be massively impressed. That would be cool. <laughs> that would be really freaking cool. Is there a rule governing? If I get a sponsorship from anybody, that would be cool. <laughs> what were you saying, Jack? Is there a rule gar- uh, regarding advertising cigarette brands and podcasts like there is in like TV and radio? I don't know. Podcasts aren't regulated by the FCC. All right. We're good then. Yeah. So um, speaking of plugs, if you like the show, leave a, leave a review. The stars do matter. Uh, even a written review is even better because that helps our algorithms. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at armchair commanders podcast. Um, and also, like I said, you can find our stuff on the history apprentice YouTube channel. Jack, do you have anything before we sign off? I've got nothing. All right. Well, if nobody else has anything, uh, I've been John. I'm Jack. And I'm Blake. And we will catch you all next time. Bye.